Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Greetings and welcome to our deep sea domain. This is Under Consultation, an episode-by-episode podcast-type situation through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Cohen, and as the star of this podcast, I can't be seen blowing myself. Well, you may not be able to be seen blowing yourself, Luke, but I do think you could have worn a better shirt. I am Ash Versus. This episode aired on the 14th of November 1996. Soviet Strike is top of the video game charts, a triple header of What Becomes of the Brokenhearted, slash Saturday Night of the Movies, slash You'll Never Walk Alone by Robson and Jerome Tops the Pops, and Michael Collins is your UK box office number one. It's not enough that they murder one song, they murder three songs. Now, I, you and I have both heard of the concept of a double A side, yeah? I mean, Robson and Jerome's whole thing has been double A sides. What's this triple A side bullshit that they're pulling off here? Well, that's, you know, this is the genius of Simon Cowell, you see. He's looked at this and been like, well, the double A side worked. What if it was a triple A side? But seven inch singles only have two sides, Luke. Tapes only have two sides. It's 1996. It's the era of the mini disc now. Genuinely, phrases I never thought I'd hear on this podcast. <laughs> it's the era of the mini disc. <laughs> It's only now, and it's very much not for much longer. It reminds me of uh, a Mitchell and Webb sketch when they have a boardroom meeting of toothbrush PR, basically. Guys, it's 2006. I have one question for you. What's next? Um, Chaz? No. Come on, guys. This is serious. People are out there right now buying toothbrushes that we didn't make. I think we have to realise we may have run out of things we can tell them they need on their toothbrush. (laughs) I think we could get them to brush their tongues. (laughs) 
much gas, but no. They're not going to brush their tongues. I think they will. I think that if we tell them to brush their tongues, they'll brush their tongues. Is there any health benefit to brushing your tongue? I have no idea. But show me your tongue. Oh, uh, yeah. You see? Dirty. He's got a dirty tongue. Has he? No, of course he hasn't. But you thought he might have. And when it's not me saying it, but a Scottish brunette in rectangular glasses and a lab coat... I think you might have something. They might actually brush their tongues. Of course they will. Did you know that up to 68% of us suffer from dirty tongue? Over time, microscopic anti-tongonoids build up a gritty, tarry surface, which might very well mean that people laugh at you behind your back and secretly find you repulsive. I have to market it at men too, Gus. Which might very well mean that that's why you're not getting enough sex. So, what, we'd put something on the back of the toothbrush? Could do. Doesn't matter. I mean, people aren't actually going to brush their tongues. Trying to brush your tongue makes you wretch. Everybody knows that. But when they're buying a toothbrush, they'll forget it. They'll forget everything except the Scottish brunette telling them that's why they're not getting enough sex. They will. They will. They'll brush their goddamn tongues. And if we can get them to brush their tongues, we can get them to do anything and that is what this is here is if we can get them to do a triple a side there's no stopping how many a sides you can have the thing that annoys me the most about this and it's not specifically robson and jerome because i'm aware they were bloody finger puppets by this point i like all three of these songs and so it's not just seeing one song i like being covered barely competently it's three of them what Becomes of the Brokenhearted, not only a great song, but also was used in the final scene of uh, Drop the Dead Donkey right at the end when Globelink News has closed down and some have gone on to radio, some have gone on to uh, being a bit of a black widow and all this stuff. But it's just this montage and that's the song playing in the background. And so I've got this very strong connection in my head. And I don't want to think about these twats singing it. I just don't. Saturday night at the movies, it's a bopper. You'll never walk alone. Anfield. I'm going to use a word I use very rarely. I hate Simon Cowell. I want him to stop. Retroactively, I want him to stop. I want him to go back to 1996 and stop. At least we would have still got zig and zag. Like, I would say, you know, I'm, I'm dyed in the wool blue uh, here when it comes to which side of Merseyside I fall. So I hate You'll Never Walk Alone. I fucking hate that song. I, because I have to. I, I'm not allowed to have any other opinion. I have to hate that song. All you can do is just change the lyrics to And You'll Never Win Fuck All. Which unfortunately doesn't work now because they keep winning everything. But back in the 90s, it was hilarious. Yeah, I mean, how's the blue side doing now, Luke? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, we haven't won a major championship since 1995, but that's beside the point. Like, this is, it's a song that I'm not allowed to like. And so the, the cover story does nothing for me. You know, it is a good song, really. You know, I mean, t- taking off my football scarf, it is a good song. I'm just not allowed to like it. So a, so a bad cover of this does not affect me in any way. Is it one of those things where if you hear this song and you find yourself starting to sing along to it, you just have to like hit yourself or something and it's just like, stop oh, it. Yeah, stop it. Can't be doing that. No, that's for the Reg. We don't care what the Reg might say. This podcast would never have existed if we were both still <laughs> active football supporters. So, Michael Collins. Yeah, I mean, there's not. I, I, I've never seen it. Um, you know, reading up about it on Wikipedia, it's, it's got a fairly decent cast to it. It's Liam Neeson, Alan Rickman, Julia Roberts, based on real people. We've had a few films on this where I've gone like, oh, I'll go out of my way to watch this. 
I don't know whether this is one of those films. It looks like a perfectly functional, good film. If I'd have heard about this in my 20s, when you've got so much free time on your hands that you'll watch any movie that gets put in front of you, I'd have absolutely lapped it up. On the wrong side of 35 now, I I need to pick which films I'm checking out. And unfortunately, I don't think this is one of them. And even the, the Wikipedia article, I mean, it's got a lot to say because obviously it's based on historical events. There are a few noticeable differences. For one, the end of the film. That is not what happened in history. But the one note that leapt out was that a number of Irish actors auditioned for the part of De Valera, but the director felt they weren't able to find a real character and were just playing this kind of stereotype, this caricature. And then he met with John Turturro. And that, that look that you just had on your face, apologies, I know it's an audio medium, but that look that Luke just had on his face is exactly the look I had when I was reading this page going, John Turturro? Because yeah. Alan Rickman makes sense. He's Alan Rickman. John Turturro. Yeah, it's it, it's crazy, isn't it? Like, there's a, a whole litany of names that kind of like sort of jump out to you. You know, like Gabriel Byrne, Kevin Costner, Matt Damon, Adam Baldwin. They're sort of like all across this Wikipedia page of this movie that really I don't think many people will have particularly fond memories of, unless of course you are from the area. It is worth noting that when it was released, though, in the UK. It was a 15 rating, thanks BBFC. In America, it was rated R. In Ireland, it dodged the over 15 certificate bracket by being of historical importance, even though they fudged the ending, but it got it a PG certificate. I wonder if that's the same case then, because I was just listening to Sonic the Comet, the podcast, and they were talking about their experiences of watching Independence Day. And Chris McFeely pointed out on that, that he went across to Ireland to watch Independence Day because it wasn't a 12 in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, but it was a PG in Ireland, in the Republic. So him and his younger brothers went down to watch it there instead. Because of its historical importance, I guess? That's, that's what I'm guessing. You know, maybe maybe they got really swept up by Independence Day UK and thought that it was a real thing. It could happen again, Luke. It could happen again. Dirk Max is a very, very clever man. You know, they were listening to that being like, I heard Patrick Moore punch an alien on the radio. We've got to get this film out as a PG. People need to know what happened. It is worth saying the censor uh, who passed it as a PG caught some flack and actually had to issue an official kind of press statement going, look, it's a landmark in Irish cinema and it is believed that parents should have the option of making a decision as to whether their children should see this film or not because of its kind of historical importance. When it was released on video, it was given a 12, but I'm entirely in favour of films that have some level of historical importance, whether it's for Ireland, England, Scotland, wherever of giving them, where possible, a rating that allows parents to make a decision over whether their children should see it. Of course, when it comes out on video, it's a moot point anyway, but there is still that inherent power of cinema, the inherent power of being in the big screen. Mm. It's, the, it's the Passion of the Christ argument. Passion of the Christ, by all rights, should not have got the rating that it got. But it was passed at that rating in America because the Christian beliefs were like, no, this should be seen by everyone. This should have the widest audience it possibly can. Even though it breaks a lot of MPAA rules and regulations, we think that more people should be able to watch this movie because of, quote unquote, historical significance. If you believe in that sort of thing. I mean, okay, I now immediately find myself disagreeing with my prior statement. But no, I will stick with it. If they did it for the Passion of the Christ, 
fine. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Like, I'm not a religious man in, in the least. However, I kind of get the argument in the same way that I, I, get, I get it for this as well. I need to check. Did they do it for Braveheart? <laughs> Just looking at the TV and music news now on November 12th, and I actually was pretty stunned to hear this because it's not something I'm very familiar with, but Eminem released his first album, Infinite, on November 12th, 1996. Now, Eminem's a name that I don't really know until sort of 1999 when it comes to the the Slim Shady LP. So I was really surprised to hear that he actually released a full album three years prior to that. I'm much like you. I heard of Eminem in that 99 to 2000, 2001 period. That was kind of when he catapulted upwards, entered the stratosphere and just became this massive, massive superstar. However, on the same day, November 12th, and I think this is much more important to you and I, it's the debut of Nevermind the Buzzcocks. Some questions have no answers. Do you think The Lady in Red is the most beautiful song ever written? Some singing has no meaning. (laughs) Some fashions have no explanation. The band's stage costumes were so valuable that they were forced to take out a special insurance policy. Earth, wind, fire and theft. And one show... We're not dreaming, Richard. We're all wearing leather. ...has no limits. Never mind the Buzzcocks starts Tuesday at 10 on BBC Two. The comedy pop quiz for shiny, happy people and gibbons. Ah, a show that went through eras. I was a big fan of the Lamar era, less a fan of the Amstel era. I think we covered that back in series three. Quite fine with the guest host era, but love, never mind the Taskmaster. The recent reboot with Greg... Basically, it's like Cats does Countdown except Taskmaster and Buzzcocks. It's some of your favourites from Taskmaster, including the Taskmaster, bringing the show back and being just as questionable as ever. I was a huge Buzzcocks fan. I remember like my cousin had one of those like best of Buzzcock moments VHS type things that we would watch a lot of. Like he had one of those and one of Shooting Stars. Watched a lot of those types of things. Yeah, I was massively into Buzzcocks. Loved the intros round. Uh, The thing that used to make me laugh every single week without fail and it still makes me laugh to this day with the reboot as well. It's when you're doing the lineup rounds and the various names that they're given, which are sort of like derivatives of what, you know, what starting point that they've got. And every single week, it never fails to make me piss my pants. I love the intros round because I especially loved it when I got the song. Yes. And still the same. I love it when I get the song because particularly in the reboot, I'd say no offence to them, but they're fucking shocking. Oh, it's they awful, are... awful business. <laughs> I miss Lamar on Buzzcocks. I miss Lamar on Buzzcocks. I actually, someone sent me across a clip of Lamar recently of him interviewing Faith No More, and it was just so much fun watching that. Like, I, I was a big, big fan of Mark Lamar on the show. Anyway, that's enough of that. Ash, what's going on in the magazine? Right. So we have been reading, until recently, from the November magazine. And when was this episode broadcast? This was the 14th of November, 1996. Right. Turns out we should have been on the December issue of the magazine. I mean, is this just a publication thing? Like in November, you release the December issue? No, because on Thursday, the 21st of November, issue 50, the Christmas issue comes out. So we have a December issue of a magazine that is released in October, comes off the shelf in November, doesn't get in an hair's ass of the actual month that is on its spine. Well, this we come back to that, releasing a Christmas issue of a magazine that also has a December issue. It's really confusing and it's made all the worse by the fact that Games Master are rapidly inconsistent on featuring a next month banner to give us the sodding release date. We only got a couple of weeks on the November issue. 
we're on to the December issue. Spoilers, we're only getting a couple of weeks here as well. But we've had Tekken news. We've had Street Fighter news. I'm sure we've probably skimmed over some Mortal Kombat news. Luke, guess what? What's that? We've got the first pictures of Battle Arena Toshin Den 3. 3, you say? Yes, it says here in this article, first pics of Toshin Den 3. As we go to press, we've managed to get hold of the very first development shots of the third in Takara's Toshin Den series. That's it, that's a news article. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to Games Master, where even a former Olympic gold medal swimmer like myself needs a bit of extra buoyancy. The reason the girls are blowing up my water wings is as the star of the show, I can't be seen to blow myself. Later on in the show, we have got Hollyoaks heartthrob Paul Lation as our special guest. Uh, you can stop blowing now, girls. Uh, who's your favourite heartthrob? Um, mine's Cliff Richard for the wonderful example he sets to young children. Hmm, Kurt Cobain for exactly the same reasons. Well, we find ourselves with the mermaid blowing Dominic. Zzz, water wings. Oh, look, Luke, a visual allusion to a blowjob joke. It truly is 1996. <laughs> I, I, I quite enjoyed this intro, the, the, the joke at the end perhaps notwithstanding, but I, the visual of it I thought was quite fun, and Dom claiming to be a former Olympic gold medal winning swimmer, which, you know, I went to his Wikipedia page and I don't think that's true. But I thought a lot of this was actually pretty good. It's, it's, it's very base level double entendre, but, you know, it sort of works. I reckon maybe he is that level of swimmer and he's just edited it out of his own wiki page. I mean, Dom is not the sort of person that likes to blow his own trumpet. Well, I mean, we saw him uh, in episode one when he went to that beach. He's clearly got the body for it. Like a sexy otter. So, yeah, we have this joke at the end here with the, the your favourite heartthrob, because we've got a Hollyoaks heartthrob on later on, with Leanne saying that hers is Cliff Richard for the wonderful example he sets to young children, while Teresa has picked Kurt Cobain dot 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 for the same reasons. There's a moment that will have been edited out of this episode earlier where I told a joke from Nevermind the Buzzcocks <laughs> to Luke, which produced a fairly shocked reaction from the audience and Mark Lamar followed it with going, you might be thinking too much, but also well-crafted. And I would argue the same applies to this. It is too much, but also the timing and the pacing, mechanically for a joke, well-crafted. I am amazed it went out when it did. Yeah, I, it's, it's funny as well because I was trying to rack my brain. I feel like this is the second time Games Master has made a Kurt Cobain joke, and I cannot find the evidence of this. It's just something that's in my head. I keep going through my notes and I can't find it, but I'm, there's something telling me this is the second time now they've made a joke about Kurt Cobain where I've gone like, oh, it's a bit close to when it happened, guys. I think you're right, but also I'm trying to remember if that happened or if when we've talked in the past about Kurt Cobain and Nirvana, you referenced a head <laughs> to this particular moment. Maybe that's what it is. Listeners, you are way better at remembering our podcast than we are. Let us know. Please do. Well, it seems our old friend Sonic has succumbed to the present climate of moral decay. His latest outing, the arcade titled Sonic Championship, finds him beating up his old pals in a frenzy of pent-up teen rage. On secret test at the moment, the game features a variety of special moves, including Sonic's classic spinball. Sonic's school teachers are so appalled, they've shut down his school. It's a game that we're going to get a challenge of later in this series. It's Sonic Championships, or Sonic Fighters, as it sort of later becomes known. This guy, they show it's an early version of the game. Which, you know, it's, it's a game that's... Like, it didn't get a Saturn port because, you know, Saturn didn't really get a quote-unquote proper Sonic game. And even if this came out on the Saturn, I don't think I would have classified this as a 
proper Sonic game. But I think it's an an interesting curio, and I think that's kind of where it stands sort of within Sonic fandom, kind of actually similar to Sonic R, you know, talking of quote-unquote proper Sonic games on the, the Assassin. It's Sonic as a 3D beat-em-up. It's an interesting yeah. idea. I don't think I would have made it. I think I would have probably just put more effort into making an actual Sonic game. I mean, the critics weren't quite sure what to make of it. Generally, it was like, it looks really nice. Gameplay is a bit naff. It was built on top of the uh, Fighting Vipers engine, which, of course, we just talked about the other week. And it was the it kind of came out of AM2 fartassing around in the Fighting Vipers game going, I wonder... I wonder what a 3D Sonic would look like in Fighting Vipers. And apparently they kind of showed this to the Sonic team and Sonic went, yeah, okay, that looks pretty good. That looks nice and smooth. It moves well. We give you the thumbs up and we will supervise it. When the actual correct answer should have been, wow, that's really interesting. Let's put Sonic as an unlockable character in Fighting Vipers, as opposed to being like, no, this should be its own fighting game. Uh, it's its own thing. Like, yeah, it's just it's it's so typical of Sega at this point, where ignoring their mascot that has made them money. That actually, you know, he the house that Sega, the house that Sonic built is what Sega is, and they're still being like, no, I don't really know what to do with this character. Uh, is it a fighting game? Is it a racing game? Uh, is it this 3D game for the Mega Drive that's also a Saturn game because Sonic Extreme's not going to be coming out now? Like, I just don't think they really had an, an idea a, a grip of what sonic should be which is remarkable considering it's very very easy to get right if only look if only they had three solid 16-bit games that tell them exactly what sonic is meant to be yeah if only that existed and they just weren't stuck with this blue hedgehog that popped out of nowhere yeah it's, it's actually it's infuriating really uh, and actually, what's even more infuriating, Ash, is that we're talking about how they're getting this wrong in 1996. It's 2022, and they're still fucking getting it wrong. Thankfully, fan games exist who do seem to get it right. And yeah. occasionally, those fan games grow up to be a real boy and become Sonic Mania. But then Sonic Mania 2 gets cancelled because, no, what we actually need is an open-world Sonic game that no one's asked for. I want to believe that the simple fact that we've got this open-world Sonic game that no one has asked for that no one really seems to want and no one is sure why they're doing it is that it then actually turns out to be good. Ooh, what if it does, though? Yeah, I, I mean, moving us back to, to Sonic Fighters slash Championship, as I said, we get this as a challenge later on, so maybe we'll dive into a little bit more then. But I, I think probably the most interesting thing about the game is that it had its roster of characters and then hackers got into the code and were like, let's actually expand out the roster because there are other characters in there like Metal Sonic, Robotnik, and honey the cat who's actually based off candy from fighting vipers but essentially if you just sort of hack the code you can have them as unlockable playable characters and that was so much fun by the hacking community and became sort of an integral part of the the hack you know for the on mame and stuff that when they re-released the game in 2005 sega just put them in as regular characters because they're like well everyone's already got hold of them anyway so we'll just put them in there as playable characters and i think that's quite fun I don't think I really saw this in the arcade, even though like my local bowling alley was a Sega-based arcade. Don't think I saw this there. Even though we had Sega Sonic, I don't think we had Sonic Fighters at that point. I'm not even sure actually if my bowling alley was still a Sega one at this point. It absolutely blows my mind. You mentioned the abandoned Saturn port, that we got a very good port of Fighting Vipers on the Saturn, and yet the reason they abandoned Sonic the Fighters for the Saturn is they just felt that they couldn't get 
the experience of the arcade version into the Saturn. And I'm looking at the game and I'm looking at Fighting Vipers and I'm going, lads, it's the same game. In fact, there are less textures to fart ass around with in this one because he's blue, kind of flat with it. Do you know what that's code for for me? The Saturn's a dead duck and we don't want to waste our time. I desperately don't want to admit you're right there. <laughs> but you, you bang on the button there. Is it the best 3D Sonic game they've put together? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, I say that as someone that's got a lot of love for Sonic Adventure 2. Yeah. I mean, it's it's certainly top five. You never know, Luke. That open world game <laughs> could come out and just blow our fragile little minds into oblivion. Even if it does, it's still top five. <laughs> Universal Studios Florida just announced their biggest money spinner of the summer has been the newly installed Terminator attraction. Directed by James Cameron and featuring all the stars from the original film, the 3D extravaganza has the honour of being minute for minute the most expensive piece of celluloid since that dodgy film I made with the donkey. Now, talking about something that I frigging loved. Oh, mate, I went to Universal Studios in Florida. I went to Florida first time, 1998 we went. Uh, went with my cousin um and this was one of the rides that i had to go to i loved universal studios disney was great and everything but universal studios was was the place that me and our danny completely fell in love with because it was always like it was still the great time of universal studios at least you know for my sort of nostalgic memories because jaws was still there king kong was still there back to the future was still there like all of those rides were still there and this t2 ride was just incredibly cool so so awesome i was lucky enough to get to go on the one at universal studios hollywood uh i went actually an exceptionally good time because i went i think it must have been maybe 2005 so i got to do terminator 2 the ride i also got to do back to the future the ride because that Mm -hmm. obviously closed in 2007 and you know my love for both franchises really high up there oh they both held up well but t2 the ride what a show what a what a spectacle and i think kind of like because the back to the future one is brilliant because it's got you know doc brown's in it and biff tannen's in it and it's the actual actors doing it and it looks really really cool but it looks like it's done on a very cheap set for not a lot of money dom even says here like minute for minute it's the most expensive bit of celluloid and that is because this looks like a movie Apart from his donkey porn tape. (laughs) Apart from that, yeah. Which also looks like a movie. It looks like it's a James Cameron level movie. And that's like, it really does feel... James Cameron directs donkey porn. (laughs) Hey, if Kevin Smith can do it, I'm sure Cameron's on board for it as well. It will take him 10 years, but he'll get get it released. I'd say we've just uncovered the plot for Avatar 3. (laughs) But yeah, it just, it looks like a movie. Schwarzenegger's in there. Like all the cast are there. It just, it feels legit. And even though, you know, when you're actually watching the actors on stage, it's not Schwarzenegger and it's not Robert Patrick, and but it feels like them because the movie that you're watching, the 3D Spectacular, feels so real. It's the best. I, for my money, there are two brilliant 3D rides across the two Florida theme parks. It's this and the Muppets. And I don't know which one I prefer, but I think it's probably Terminator, but the Muppets is really good. I've never been to the Muppets one, but as I say, I have seen this one and it was a beautiful use of 3D. It was a beautiful mixing of film and real actors and real props. The, uh, was it T-70s or whatever? The massive like props that came out of the ground. Oh, so cool. And just the fact the way they played with time travel did it all. I'm not surprised that whilst, yes, 
this did cost over $60 million to put together just for the Florida one. I'm not surprised it's their attraction of the summer. The entire thing was, what, 12 minutes long? How many shows can you cycle through in a day on 12 minute long experiences? It's a lot and people would queue for it. Oh, dude, we queued massively for it. Considering we went in October as well, which isn't a particularly busy time in Florida. Case in point, we could we went on Space Mountain in Disney World and got off the ride and immediately joined a queue again and got back onto the, the next run of the ride because it's not really that busy. T2, still massive queues for. Uh, even when like we went to the Halloween Horror Nights at Universal, which was a fantastic little time, and we still queued up to do T2, really because me and our Danny were convinced there was going to be a horror theme to it because everything else was so themed. It wasn't. It was the exact same show, but we still queued. And there was a guy at the end of it when we were coming out of the exit who was just crouched down by the door holding onto like a two cans in his hands, two sort of tin cans. And he was just staring at me dead in the eye and he made me stop in my tracks. And I was like, oh, he's going to do something and he's going to make me jump. I mean, you know, 1998, so I'm 12 years old. And I really stopped, but I started holding up a queue behind me because there's people trying to exit out of the, you know, the screening and that. And eventually my cousin sort of like pushed me forward and stuff. And the second I moved forward, he clanked the two tin cans together and proper sh** my pants as I moved past him. And that, that's one of my <laughs> lasting memories of the T2 ride. That and, you know, a guy then chased me with a chainsaw. It was a brilliant time, Halloween Horror Nights. I don't think there was much of a queue when I went to see it, because when I went to see it, it was February yeah. in Hollywood. So we didn't queue more than maybe 10, 15 minutes for most of the rides. I think Jurassic Park, the ride, was the longest one that we queued for. And that's just because it's a boat. You know, you have to wait for the boat, basically. But even though there wasn't a long queue, the theatre was still full. It says a lot how well it aged because here we are, it's 1996 and it's debuted and I saw it 10 years later. It didn't feel like it had aged. Do you know what? I, like, I don't even mind the fact, because this isn't new news either. The show, you know, this has opened in April. So like it's, fit, it's quite and quite old news by this point. But like I think, you know, in terms of the news traveling from America to the UK, this still is very, very recent. It was one of the, also one of the few rides that I went to that I bought merchandise for. It was a black t-shirt that just had flames down it with a Terminator skull in the flames nice oh, it's like, like that shot from T2 oh it was it was fucking cool and I felt so metal with it I'm very glad and also amazed that Cameron gave the green light for this because he can be prickly yeah shall we say yeah and he was against it but then he saw the storyboards and the concept and he was like cool I can do that and obviously got involved it's so cool to have this kind of unofficial direct sequel to T2 and the fact that Hamilton was back in, Arnold was back in. I'm not surprised Arnold was back in. I was surprised Hamilton came back and Eddie Furlong and Robert Patrick. And yeah, I, I miss it. Like, I'm sad about the fact we'll never get to see it. And yeah. I'm hoping maybe... I mean, th there are videos of run-throughs of it. Same with the Back to the Future thing. Same with a bunch of kind of um, old attractions. High Defunct Land, you know, stuff like that. But it's a shame that so many of these kind of big funk big features are now just dark rides or yeah. or motion rides yeah and like it, it's still open in japan but i've done theme parks in japan and from from personal experience i would say there because of the language barrier there is something missing like we went to the the little mermaid show in uh in tokyo disney sea and it was awesome because it's a very cool spectacular of, you know, a woman literally swimming through the sky. 
but because of the language barrier, you are missing sort of like a lot of the the connection to it, I guess, in a way. You're just enjoying the visual, and I think you would still miss that with T2. Or you just you just get the nice 3D aspect of it. Yeah, but amazing to see it here on Games Master. Regular viewers, and I know of at least three, will remember our feature on Retro Games a couple of weeks back. Well, now it seems the arcade classic Pac-Man is due for a comeback, but this time in virtual reality. VR Pac-Man is due in arcades sometime soon, and like most virtual reality rides, apart from the fact it costs a fortune, you can't see where you're going and makes you feel sick, looks brilliant. And speaking of things we've seen on Games Master previously, remember that time we talked about retro video games just the other week? Well, Pac-Man's back, and this time he's in VR. You know what I always think of whenever I see Pac-Man, Luke? What if this was VR? It's just literally the only thing I can think about. <laughs> so I found this on the uh, the Pac-Man wiki uh, about Pac-Man VR, which just says, and this is a direct quote, Virtuality, the developer machines as a whole, performed very poorly in the arcades, and Pac-Man VR was no exception. To make matters worse, nearly every machine was sent back to Virtuality, where they were eventually liquidated. As such, not a single Pac-Man VR machine has surfaced. Only a short gameplay video and some old promotional material exists. The promotional video being the stuff we hear see here in Games Master. There are a lot of 2D games which I'm like, yeah, I can see that adapting to virtual reality. Pac-Man is not one of them. I mean, from a control perspective, you you turn your head, Pac-Man turns his head, and you move with the joystick. So there's not even any kind of like motion control to actually make you move around. Therefore, what's the point? I will say the promotional footage, it doesn't look that bad when you look at some of the VR stuff we've had on Games Master, which has looked, quite frankly, trash, has not aged well at all. This at least is recognisably Pac-Man and the ghosts. You kind of, you know what they're doing. But I have less than zero desire to ever play this. And apart from the fact that obviously lack of digital preservation is always a sad thing i feel next to nothing about the fact that all these machines were junked i think one of the key things to pac-man when i think about playing pac-man is not only knowing where you are it's knowing where the ghosts are and if you have to turn your head to turn pac-man you're never going to know where all the ghosts are at any one time so the probability of you actually doing well on this game feels less than likely i've just come up with a pitch for a pac-man vr game that would work use the dead by daylight model but in reverse so one of you is pac-man and the rest of you are the ghosts well let's get into our first challenge and first we're going to head over to dominic diamond for a little bit more information like doom before it quake is famous for its super fast gameplay and ultra violence also like doom quake enthusiasts have been creating their own custom additions to the game and posting them on the internet Nice efforts include this banana skin weapon, which encourages some slapstick action in deathmatch mode. The grappling hook patch allows you to hoist yourself up to the roof and take your enemies from a more relaxed vantage. Or even this spaceship patch, more down the opposition from the comfort of your cockpit, like in the Gulf War. As we speak, in countless bedrooms across the nation, young people are busy coming up with novel ways of customising the game. Some, like Michael Mad Dog Clark, use software downloaded from the internet to create their own custom levels. Michael designs deathmatch levels, which he then plays against his next-door neighbour, thanks to a little wire that connects the PCs in their two bedrooms. It's a game that you and I absolutely love, but tore ID apart, it's Quake. It's Quake. I love Quake. I was playing Quake around this time. Quake is great. Quake is awesome. That's it. 
That's the story. <laughs> That's pretty much it, yeah. I mean, Quake has got a, a fascinating little history about it as well. It's a game that's... I, I was watching an interview uh, with uh, Tim Willits earlier today, and they basically just keep saying this thing about Quake, which is that it is the happiest of accidents. You know, it's, it's born out of Commander Keen and it was designed to be one thing, and then they couldn't really decide what that one thing would be. Is it going to be an RPG? Is it going to be an action-adventure game? We're going to make it an FPS game. Well, Romero doesn't want to make it an FPS game. Well, it's staying an FPS game. And then you've got four like lead designers on this thing in Romero, America McGee, Sandy Peterson, and, and Tim Willits. And because there's no design overhead of what Quake is, all four of them make vastly different levels. And so then they have to look at these four different levels and be like, well, how does this work then? And they just make up the very, very easy bullshit of there were four elder gods and four lands and they're connected by these gates. And that was it. And that was how Quake came to be. <laughs> it was just this. Uh, we've got four very disparate things, but wibbly wobbly, timey wimey, it now works. You read the story of Quake now and you see, as you said, how it tore ID software apart. I just remember having played Doom and then sitting down and playing this game in 3D. I think at the time it didn't bother me how brown it was, but it was still this amazing immersive world. And this is, of course, still in the time before 3D accelerators. This was running on the Pentium 166 Evesham Micros that my mum got to do the accounts on. It also played Quake. Yeah, in the same way that, like, when I played through Quake, I never at any moment thought, crikey, a lot of this doesn't really add up, not this makes sense. It just works. And I think it is because, and I've talked about this uh, when we had Doom on the show, when I, I loved Doom and my brother absolutely loved Quake. And the reason for that was because it's 3D. It's actual 3D as opposed to Doom, which is a 2D game masquerading as a 3D game. And it feels like you'd want to talk about a leap. You know, last week we were talking about Virtual Fighter 2 to Virtual Fighter 3. Mm -hmm. That's what this is here. This leap from Doom to Quake is an incredible jump in just a short number of years recently i've played both some of the original doom again also some of the original quake again because it came to game pass big re-release last october i'm certain that even though i've always loved doom that when quake came out my eyes were drawn to the 3d shiny shiny and the polygonal body parts the gibbs that littered the floor. And as I think we've discussed both it, both between ourselves and also with our friends on our Discord, things like Doom just feel like they've aged more gracefully because there is a pinnacle to what you can achieve with sprite-based art. Whereas 3D, the edges look rough nowadays and it's very difficult to look at stuff and not go, this is the kind of the beginning, this is nascent, you know, this is, this is the, the originator, but things evolved. However, I will say playing Quake on the re-release, fully supported in Windows 10, full screen, 1080p. I got quite a thrill, especially because, man, it was running faster than it ever ran on that PC that was used for the account. <laughs> I really liked Quake, but I massively got into Quake 2, uh, particularly the PlayStation port. Loved that game. Like, in multiplayer, it was so good. With, you, know, you get that multi-app out of four of you doing a deathmatch thing. It was so much fun. For me, with the original Quake, the multiplayer aspect was what kept me playing it long after others had come out because the internet cafe in Cheltenham, where I went to and worked, we had two games we played on that LAN. We had Quake and we had Command & Conquer Red Alert. But Quake was the king, as were the mods. 
because much like Doom, Quake was all about the mods, the total conversions, the new weapons, the new enemies, the strange kind of little glitchy behaviors that suddenly became a key part of the game mechanic. And the, the Quake modding community as well, it's, it's alive and well to this day. It kind of in the same way like the Doom modding community is. And I think that people always go back to those original games because they're just so much fun to play around with. And yeah, I never really, I played a lot of Doom mods. I didn't really get into a lot of Quake mods. So like a lot of the stuff I was seeing here, this is kind of like a bit new to me, like this banana skin patch or the, sort of the grappling hook and things like that. But I love hearing stories like the one you just told then about like the various different ways of playing Quake. And it kind of makes me want to go back to that time and play those things. Because like, as I've said, with, like the internet cafe I used to go to, it was just, it was fucking Counter-Strike and that was it. It's all they ever wanted to play. I would have loved to have actually got people to play a, a game that I was really into like Quake or at that time, Unreal Tournament. Mm. There's also a hell of a joke here in this uh, where, and I'm going to read this line directly. As we speak, in countless bedrooms across the nation, young people are busy coming up with ways of customizing Quake. A millisecond longer, that would have been cut. <laughs> it's, it's just enough of a pause. If you go back and listen to it, it still sounds like a natural sentence, but there is just a millisecond extra pause that just highlights what Dominic is saying. Especially as he's talking about hormone-ridden teenage boys. <laughs> like Michael Mad Dog Clark. Did you hear? He downloaded a program from the internet to do this. Amazing. You can download programs from the internet, Luke. Whatever <laughs> will they think of next? And I, here's me thinking it was just to do the accounts. We learn something new every day. More favourite to me than him downloading stuff from the internet, and even more favourite than the fact that he has the nickname Mad Dog, is the beautiful peak 90s concept of an ethernet cable going away from your computer, <laughs> out the window, suspended between two houses, going up and down and then through kind of a gap in, <laughs> a gap in the patio door. And then boom, we're playing Quake now. 1v1. It's so good because he got the programme from the internet. But he's not playing this game on the internet. No, he's playing this LAN style. It is. If you haven't seen the episode, this is the bit I would tell people to go out of their way to watch because it literally is. Ash was not lying there. This is a guy in his bedroom who has got a, a wire out of the back of his PC out of his window that is going across to his neighbor's house into his bedroom window so they can play quite together. It is a fucking wonderful visual. But you know what, let's head on over to Games Master for the actual challenge. For this challenge, I've enlisted the help of young Michael Clark, who's used his level designing skills to prepare an especially fiendish scenario to test our player's ability. Quite simply, my contestant must get through the level and reach the exit before the demonic denizens make a meal of him. If he does, he'll earn his domestic. If not, it seems only fair that Michael and the author of his demise should take the prize instead. Now, you know, you were saying there for Quake was king when it comes to multiplayer games. And there's part of me that's just like, oh, it, you know, it would have been so easy for them to just do land party Quake, 1v1v1v1 or something like that. I think this is actually a more interesting way of doing a Quake challenge. I would entirely agree, and not just because it's a very unique way of doing a player versus a player. It's kind of one person is setting the trap up and the other person has to avoid it. But also because as we saw with the Doom Deathmatch, at this point in time, on standard definition, with the technology available, it is bloody difficult 
to capture a multi-person deathmatch and broadcast it on television because you're cutting perspectives, you're cutting views, and there isn't always anything that will tell you who you're seeing when and what, why and how. This is a remarkably clever way to come up with a unique challenge and indeed one that's not necessarily going to be one-sided because, of course, the other danger with a deathmatch is what if one person is just better than everyone else? It's over quickly or it just gets repetitive. I think this is a rad way of doing it. So we've got Michael, who we met earlier, who's made a level specifically for the challenger to take on. If the challenger completes the level, he gets the joystick. But if he gets caught out, if he doesn't beat the level, Michael gets the joystick. Michael, like he's on commentary as well. So he's kind of like providing sort of the, the inside track to, to Dominic Diamond. Brilliant way to put this together. I will also say, I'll put it on the line now, even though we haven't got to the challenge. This kid is great on commentary. I don't know if he's had any experience with like college radio, school radio, acting, school plays or whatever. This kid is more comfortable on commentary than some of the journalists we've had over the past five or six seasons. He feels more comfortable in the show than Ed Lomas does in the reviews. I can't argue with that. He really does. (laughs) He's really good. He even has a couple of gags, a couple of bits. It's only when, spoilers, things don't go so well for his creation, where he sounds a little bit kind of like, Oh, I'm not going to win the joystick, am I? Yeah, he has a realization that he's not going to win. There's a moment like, you know, we'll get to it in a bit, but like, you know, and Dom's like, oh, he made short work of that, didn't he? He's like, yeah, unfortunately. And he, he says the word unfortunately quite a lot in his commentary. So wandering around in the dark with the whole world trying to kill them in a thinly veiled metaphor of my life, please welcome David McCandless and Michael Clark. Okay, now... Mike, are you, uh, we saw you on last series yeah. in a feature out of the, uh, the World Doom Championships yes, in Seattle. Right. It's not unfair to say you're probably the best Doom player in Britain. Absolutely. Uh, are you as good on Quake? Absolutely. There is no one who can even touch you? Nobody. At all. Michael, you think you've designed something which might test Mike a little bit? Uh, yeah, actually, I think it'll test him quite a bit. Uh, he's got loads of monsters. We're talking big monsters. We've got traps and he hasn't got no chance. Taking on this challenge, which is apparently a thinly veiled metaphor of Dominic's life, we have a returning player. Although last time we saw him, it was in a feature. It's one Damon Macca McCandless, who we last saw at the Doom finals. And if I remember correctly, he was somewhat unfairly cheated out of his position. Because he was quite a bitter man in that because he felt like he had been cheated out of this because what was it like the guy's speakers weren't working or something so he felt that that he couldn't play the game properly but like Maka makes the point like well I couldn't hear the game either and I did absolutely fine and then he gets beaten in the the follow-up like so he was like really kind of bitter that he got beaten but I think that's just his personality because all of that sort of bitterness that he had in that interview in Series 5, he just carries over into this one here. He's got this real air about him. I'm just like, nah, I don't really know why I'm here. Like, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really good at these games, I guess. But we talked about him in the episode that he was in the Series 5. He's gone on to do very, very different things in his life now. And he kind of sort of talks about it as just like, yeah, at one point I was like the best player at Doom in the country. That's pretty much like, that's sort of how he looks back on this period of his life. But it also feels like that's what he thinks of that, of of his life at this point in time as well. Yeah, he basically says, oh yeah, I'm the best player in the UK at Doom. I'm also now the best player in the UK at Quake. It's a burden, really. (laughs) 
there's even a moment like when Dominic says, like, you know, we saw you back in series five for the, with the Doom Challenges, and he sort of like rolls his eyes a little bit, being like, oh, God, yeah, don't bring that up. Don't remind people that I'm good at Doom. Yeah, Doom is so last week, Dom. <laughs> it's all about Quake now. I, Michael's my guy because he's dead confident about his level. He's like, oh, I've got loads of monsters. I've got loads of traps. Yeah, he doesn't stand a chance of winning this. Spoilers, he's, he's not right. And this was the point where I just popped huge because, as we said, whilst Maka assumes the position, Dom takes Michael to the commentary box. And I'm like, this is like being invited into Willy Wonka's factory. This is amazing. But it is well because when Maka completes a section, it goes back to Dominic and Mad Dog to talk through what the next section is and we get to see like a preview of it sort of like the 3d rendering of it to be like you know where all the grunts are and this and the other it is like a really cool way to kind of get a a a visual of the level before maca gets to have a go on it and i think that michael being the commentary guy there highlights that even further it's a really really nice touch to have him there as opposed to just sort of sat behind him sort of monitoring what he's doing it was really nice to just get that thing of dom going okay so what have you got lined up for him next and he's like oh well i got the grunts over here there's also a grenade shooting ogre here and spelling it through i do wonder how they filmed that i'm going to assume that they did those little bits before maca had come on or maybe afterwards i don't know but i don't think they said to maca right hit the escape key before you go into the next room because also you don't want to tell him what he's got coming up. No, because this is like supposedly, and I, I do believe them as well. This is the first time he's seeing these let this level. I mean, having said that, if this is the first time he's seeing it, he reads it like a book. So he gets through the first room, takes a couple of hits down to sixty-seven percent, but he gets through it quite easily. He gets the rocket launcher and the and the nail gun. Now I like the next room though. It's got Games Master written in massive letters at, at the back of it, and he clears off all the grunts and you know all the various demons and stuff finds a room that he can't get into but very quickly just goes and flicks a switch and goes back towards it instantly the second he goes into that room looks up and sees a ceiling coming down to onto him and ducks out the way and michael's there like oh, i really thought that would get him problem is the moment those floors start to drop because essentially it's a lift mechanism they make a noise so if you're hearing that and the bit you're on isn't moving you're gonna look up i wondered if that was the case as well but like you know you're doing this on a set. I don't know how good the speakers are. He's not wearing headphones, so he's not got it like directly into his ears. It's whether I, I was just amazed if he had heard it because he just the second he walks in, boom, looks straight up. I think he just read the room really well. Yeah, maybe he's just like, okay, I've been told there are traps. I'm walking into a room. I've already had to solve one level to get here. Therefore, I reckon there's something else lined up. I do want to highlight. We talked about how good Michael is on commentary. You'll have heard a little bit of it uh, in the clips we've peppered around. I do love it when Dom's like. Couldn't we discuss things with these guys to resolve the issue? And Mike's like, well, maybe, but they'll probably just blow your head off. And Dom forgets what he was going to say next because it floors him. And he's just like, yeah, yeah, okay. You're good, kid. You got Moxie. You know, he gets through that room and gets some health packs underwater. So he's back up to 100%, making very short work of this level. However, Michael thinks he's got him on this next one because the room he's in now has got two options. You either go high or you go low. And Maka opts to go low, which has got way more grunts, way more demons, but a reward at the end. And that reward at the end is the lightning gun. And that lightning gun, I think, is his key to finishing the rest of this level. Yeah, I mean, he takes some health hits. At one point, his health does drop below 20. And that's after he's actually got the lightning gun. It's a, it's a grueling 
gruelling run of enemies. I think Michael's undoing on this level was he designed a level that was meant to be challenging, but also possible to defeat. Yeah, this isn't like that Doom mod you sent me recently. Yeah, no, no, not at all. But what he should have done is gone, okay, cool. So if I want someone to find this challenging, but be able to complete this level, I'd have five grunts. Let's make it 10 or eight. You know, just take what you think you could get past and bump it up a couple of notches. Yeah, so it's not it's not madly impossible, but there's an extra level of challenge to it. Yeah. The biggest danger that Maka comes under during the last part of the run is he actually just falls off the stairway at one point. And it's just a case of he strafes too far to the right, he drops down, he does lose some health again, but then he just kind of like motors his way back up. He encounters a death knight that does knock his health below 40 again, but he never really struggles. He's a fairly cool customer. You never get the kind of idea that he's in any way panicking. It's not necessarily a cakewalk because his health does drop, but he never kind of feels like he's completely lost in the woods. Well, Mike, it didn't seem to be a huge amount of problems. They finished on uh, on 39. What were some of the difficult bits in it for you? Well, the boy Wonder had a, uh, planned a little bit of jip for me there. I came around a corner down into a courtyard and there were some demons floating about there, which gave me a bit of a hassle. But apart from that, no problem. Obviously, you've, you've played a lot of these uh, the, the made-up levels on Quake. How does yeah. this compare to some of, some of the ones you've Well, played? I must admit, you know, as much as, as, much as I hate Michael, uh, that his, <laughs> his level was you know, very good, very uh -huh. good example of what you can do with Quake, basically. Okay, um, Michael, having seen Maka play, is there anything you would have changed in that level now? He was good, I must admit. But I could have put some harder monsters in, right. maybe a couple more traps and that. That would have caught him out. Uh -huh. And you could, could have worn a better shirt as well. Thank you. Appearance on the show. So could he, okay. maybe as well. Yes, but unfortunately, nothing can be criticised about my clothing. I think that's reflected in the post-match as well, because Dom literally says to him, he's like, well, he didn't seem to have any problems with that. And Max's like, yeah, not really. As much as I hate Michael, which I thought was a really funny line, it's like, it's a good example of what you can do with Quake. It's that line of, it's a good example. I, I don't think this felt like much of a challenge to him whatsoever. I go back and forth because I went back and I re-watched this a number of times and sadly it's visual so you'll have to check it out to see this when he does walk through the final portal the camera cuts to him and there is a flicker of relief he, he very quickly gets the bravado back on but I think there was a moment particularly when his health was down under 20 where he thought bollocks i might biff this just just for a moment just for a millisecond but he's not smiling when the level ends it's only when he knows he's safe that he kind of the the the, the mask comes back up fully i wonder if it's a case of and I'm, i am just completely spitballing here of like you know potential theories and stuff he's a guy that took quite a bit of pride in being a doom champion that's why he was so pissed off at the doom championships back in series five is because he felt like he was better than them and got ripped off and mina if they'd asked him to come on he's like well i don't really want to go on to this as the best quake player in the country and lose you know he's taking a lot of his reputation on here to lose to a 16 year old kid who's made this in his bedroom so maybe like that sigh of relief is just god i didn't find this because it would have been massively embarrassing to me if I had lost. Especially because season six, Dom would have made his life a living hell for the next 30 seconds on TV. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I think Michael is, you know, we said earlier that there's a moment when he realises that this level is not going to be Macca. And that's essentially, so he gets like, yeah, you know, I, I should have just put more, I should have put harder monsters in. I could have done with some more traps. 
And I, I think he's probably right there. I would have definitely thrown some more grenade-throwing ogres in, particularly on some of the rooms that were operated at multiple levels, because then grenades can be coming down and you actually can't see the monster. So you've got to kind of dodge the blast radius while trying to get a line of sight on the dude firing them. But hey, hindsight is an amazing thing. And that hindsight might have helped him when Dom's like, well, challenge is over. Your shirt's crap. <laughs> I like how Michael instantly tries to deflect it onto Maka and be like, his shirt's crap as well. But Dom shuts it down by just being like, well, no one can make fun of my shirt. He's not wrong. He's not wrong there. But Dom thanks Michael for designing the level. Thanks Maka for coming back on the show. And the mermaids present him with his golden joystick and a kiss on the cheek. I really enjoyed that as a first challenge. I thought it was a unique way of putting it together. And I thought it was a kind of actually what Maka said, a really good example of what Quake modding is and sort of what Quake level design can be. I thought it was a really clever way of doing it. And kind of like, you know, it's a sort of challenge they wouldn't have done in series two or three. This is very much a series five slash six challenge. First stop for people who are too sad to fancy real ladies, they can now ogle this cynically large-breasted Lara Croft in Tomb Raider. The programmers themselves have made the lead character extraordinarily versatile. She can jump, she can flip sideways, she can roll along the ground, she can do everything. She can even swim when you come to the water sections. Along the way, she'll come across puzzles and uh, the odd bat or two, which she'll have to shoot and get through in true Indiana Jones style. Tomb Raider's 3D graphics are excellent, especially considering that they're only on a 32-bit machine and they stand up really well next to Super Mario 64. The controls are slightly slow. Uh, like Prince of Persia, pressing a button, waiting a little while before the move actually happens. But the plot with all the rendered sequences gets you in and it's a solid, good game. Up first here, Tomb Raider. Now, the thing that struck the most at me to this review is not just the score that we get at the end here. The score, this game gets 85% uh, in this review. It's that it's wonderful to look at a world in which the Tomb Raider franchise particularly Lara Croft as a character, is just her and she. You know what I mean? It's just like, you know, like Rick's talking about like, oh no, she's this game. She's she's in this game. He's talking about Lara Croft, but never saying the name Lara Croft. A game like Tomb Raider 2, Tomb Raider 3 and onwards, you cannot talk about Tomb Raider without talking about Lara Croft and the impact that Lara Croft has had on the video game in uh, the video game landscape. But at this point here, she is just the protagonist of this current game. And it's it's kind of wonderful to go back to a world where that's the case. I said this to you before we started recording, but I had genuinely forgotten that the first Tomb Raider was a timed exclusive for the Saturn. Now, I think North America, they all launched at the same time. But in Europe, there was like a month and change where you could only buy it on the Saturn which mildly blows my mind. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you, particularly because like, when Tomb Raider does come out on the PlayStation, it becomes the PlayStation game, or one of the PlayStation games, to the point where like, some PlayStation magazines, official PlayStation magazine, thought of her as their Sonic the Hedgehog, their Mario. She's our console's mascot. There is a very, very simple reason for this, Luke. No one was buying the Saturn. <laughs> it's sad to say, but when you look at the sales figures for the Saturn versus the PlayStation, it doesn't matter that she came out a month earlier for the Saturn. There weren't enough Saturns for it to make a difference. If it had been a six-month timed exclusive or a year timed exclusive, maybe it would have changed the fortune slightly of the Saturn. But a month, 
what difference does it make? Yeah, it, it's it's kind of mad, isn't it? Like, and I, yeah, I, I mentioned earlier that I love the they're not really talking about Lara Croft. You know, when we come to we get a Tomb Raider two challenge in series seven, guarantee you it's going to be a very different world. There, we're going to be talking a lot about Lara Croft because Lara Croft did become this sex symbol of the late nineties. You know, as a as a video game character and such, and when Idos did promotional. Uh, events for Tomb Raider, they would bring in models to be Lara Croft. Rona Mitra was one of them. Nell McAndrews was a Lara Croft. Nell McAndrews did a Playboy spread as Lara Croft and was then fired by IDOS because she was never brought back to, to do that again. But she became this like pop culture icon of the time. When the movies come out, they're called Lara Croft Tomb Raider because Lara Croft was a bigger selling point than Tomb Raider was. And I think the interesting thing about that is she wasn't the original character for this game. In the review, Rick and Ed both say it's an Indiana Jones style thing. And that's what Tomb Raider was designed to be. It was literally designed to be an Indiana Jones ripoff with a male character. And then when the, you know, I just sort of like got involved and stuff, they were like, well, let's maybe not do this because we don't want to get sued by Lucas and Spielberg. So like, okay, well, I'll I'll have it so that the player can choose to be a male or female character. And then they realize that's too much work. So we'll just have a female character instead. She was called Laura Cruz, and she was this South American character. And then that was then changed to have a British flavor injected into it because Core got involved and she became Lara Croft, this, you know, the billionaire princess, what type character, this heiress. And even then. Idos wanted to change her back to a man. And the wisest thing that this company did was stick to their guns and stick with Lara Croft because, hey, Lara Croft got an album. Lara Croft got an entire album dedicated to her. Lara Croft got an album, got comics, got action figures. Like, at a point before most video game characters had action figures, Lara Croft had an action figure. Shocking sidestep for this one. I have it. Oh, cool. I didn't realise I still had it until this weekend just gone where I was going through my storage locker. It's still in the blister pack. Oh, wow. It's still, it's mint on card, but it's still a little battered because also it's 27 years old and I didn't realise it would hold much value. I've no idea what it's worth. It's a terrible looking action figure because it is based on Lara Croft in Tomb Raider 1 and 2 with kind of slightly odd proportions and her huge tracts of land. I'm heading back to the storage locker. I'll dig it out and get some photos because I just completely forgot I had this thing. I mentioned the the movies earlier. Um, and the, the reason I wanted to bring this up is because Lloyd Levin, the producer of the movies, he had a very interesting idea of Lara Croft as a character. And the reason I bring this up is because it ties back into the Indiana Jones thing. Lloyd Levin made the point is that Indiana Jones cannot be James Bond. And James Bond cannot be Indiana Jones. But Lara Croft is unique because she can be both. And that for him was the big selling point of doing a Tomb Raider movie. I enjoyed the Tomb Raider movies for what they were. I think the, I think the first one's good. Yeah. Yeah, the Angelina Jolie movies, I, they were okay for what they were. I am sad we will not get a continuation of, of the reboot movies because I really liked that portrayal of Lara Croft, much like I really liked two out of three of the Tomb Raider rebooted games. I like the ones which had Rihanna Pratchett involved in the writing process. The third one I completed out of protest because I'm like, no, I'm going to see this through <laughs> to the end, even though 
It is basically white saviour the game. Spoilers, she creates the mess that she spends the entire game trying to fix. But of all my memories of these early Tomb Raider games, of this one, of Tomb Raider 1, of Tomb Raider 2, I couldn't tell you much about Lara Croft the character beyond what's written in the manual. Like, and even the second one, I was about to say maybe it's explored more in, in Tomb Raider 2 starring Lara Croft, but I don't really think it is. It's just because you could walk around the mansion a bit. And so you sort of get a, like, oh, okay, cool. She has a location. That's borderline the, the extent of it. She can run around the mansion. What sort of person is she? I don't know, but she has the ability to lock her butler in the freezer. Might be a bit of a dick. We all did it, everyone. In the game. It, yeah, it, absolutely in the game, yeah. Yeah, do not lock real butlers in fridges. Just kind of important safety announcement. Tomb Raider for me, fun enough, actually, I played around a friend's house on a Sega Saturn. But I didn't really play on the PlayStation until like many years later. My first proper Tomb Raider game was Tomb Raider 2. I got it for the PC uh, the following year for my birthday. And I absolutely loved the heckins out of that game. And also, I am one of those people that tried the Nude Raider code. Oh, because of course there was a patch for the PC version of the first game and indeed a rumour that even on the PlayStation and Saturn versions you could type in a code and... Lara would mysteriously lose all her clothes. And they did put the cheat code in the second one, didn't they? And Luke, what <laughs> happened if you typed in that cheat code? The rumours were going round. You type in this code. Bear in mind, this is 1990, what, 1997? So I'm 12, 13 years old, right? You type in this code and Lara Croft will be nude. So you typically tap on the keyboard to type in the code and Lara Croft blows up. Literally into a hundred pieces. And I bet you there were some teenagers looking at the screen slightly surprised and going... <laughs> Well, it's a tricky wank. <laughs> but, you know, I've, I've, I've wanked her worse, so I'll, I'll make this work. Oh, the debate of whether to leave that one in, but I think we will. But yeah, 85% here uh, the game gets. You know, future instalments, but maybe not the third one, are going to do better. Ed has an interesting comment, though, saying that the graphics are excellent, especially considering they're only on a 32-bit machine. Only on a 32-bit machine. Yeah, apparently, Luke, they stand up against Mario 64. I loved that line. Only on a 32-bit machine. Ugh, this PlayStation, it's so old now. The Nintendo 64 is here. It's like, guys, we've literally just got this thing. I do get what he was saying about the controls being a bit sluggish. I don't think I necessarily realised it at the time. But because of the style of animation used, much like Prince of Persia, which it drew quite a bit of influence from, you kind of start an animation cycle and you stop an animation cycle. And so when you press a button to move forward or to do a leap or to do this, that or the other, there's a biting point and you have to follow that animation loop through. Of course, nowadays, animation engines are far more advanced, but it did create, I think, a slight disconnect at times with the game. I remember that still being the case with Tomb Raider 2 distinctly remember that still being the case but luke we see the playstation version reviewed here in the december issue of games master magazine they reviewed the sega saturn version are you ready to strike it lukey i think i'm ready to strike this one let's go so graphics brilliant 3d levels and polygon characters allow a lot of flexibility in game now brilliant is big uh, 92 95 Oh, do you know what? Okay, that's interesting because that's going to put me into a different mindset here considering what the... Because Games Master TV show, 85%. So I was almost thinking that someone... I think, I'm, I think they're going to go bigger here. So that's a good mindset to put me into. I should have also said, this is a Les review. Oh, it's my boy Les. 
You have a tricky relationship with Les sometimes, <laughs> but hopefully, hopefully it will come up okay this time. Sounds, spooky music to build up the atmosphere, and loads of spot effects. Spot effects? I guess it means like incidental sound effects. So right. kind of like when you drop an item or pick up an item or like uh, something clatters to the floor. Yeah. There's lots of pew-pews in there. I don't think it's going to be big. I'm going to say... I'm going to actually stick with what I had previously. 92. 93. Ooh. Les, mate. Les, 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 Les. We're close. We're getting there. Right. Gameplay. Proper 3D platform action with loads of puzzles and blasting thrown in. 95. You keep getting one out. It's 96. Les. Stop blaming Les. He wrote this 25 years ago. You're the one doing this now. Lifespan. 16 massive levels that will take an age to explore. Big replay value. 94. Yes, 94. Yes. Finally. So, graphics 95. Sound 93. Gameplay 96. Lifespan 94 judgment this game really shows off just what the saturn can do when someone takes the time to push the system a truly great game for a second i thought i was going to be like finally a game worth owning a saturn for (laughs) it's the game saturn owners have been waiting for which we have heard with every other good saturn game it is implied isn't it really (laughs) it's a little bit yeah Uh, but that's you know a truly great game so we are in the 90s it's not low 90s it's not high 90s it's mid 90s bang 95 you got it your relationship with les stays true 95 percent for tomb raider on the saturn 10 percent difference 10 percent difference between the magazine and the show but i also wonder as well which we've seen a lot on games master in the past you go back and listen to rick's review of the game he's only played the first level or it feels like he's only played the first level and that's not a knock on rick that's just a knock on the way that games master as a show was made whereas les got to play the full thing so i wonder if that 85 percent is just more of a first impressions review more than anything else in street racer you can commit hardcore acts of road rage without any fear of getting hauled over by the fuzz <laughs> if only life were that simple okay so Street Racer is pretty much Mario Kart, but there's no competition on the Saturn. There is no Mario Kart style of game, and Street Racer will have it all to itself. The 3D angles and the zoom out options only enhance what was already a very, very good game. There's also an eight player simultaneous split screen mode, which is the first time we've seen anything like this tried in a racing game. It's a bit difficult to see where you're going, but it's good for a laugh if you've got that many friends. The playability itself subscribes to the adage that if it ain't broken, yeah, don't fix it. Next, it's a game that we've had reviewed previously on the SNES, but here is the Saturn port for it. It is Street Racer, and I loved Rick's line of, look, Street Racer was just Mario Kart. However, there is no Mario Kart on the Sega Saturn, so Street Racer is one of a kind on this system. Also, as a point I think we've discussed at multiple points when talking about Street Racer in the background, eight players. Yeah, and like recently, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So it is shocking to me that this only gets 78%. I'm guessing because, Luke, it's the world of 3D, and this is really, just with some pan, tilt, and zoom, 
a 2D racer. Although it's the Saturn, this wouldn't have worked as well if they'd gone full 3D. I mean, maybe that is the case. Like, I suppose, yeah, if you're comparing it to Daytona or touring cars, you know, that sort of thing, maybe it does feel a bit sort of dated and stuff. But yeah, like, the, they're so overly praising of this. Not much more to say about the game because it is mostly unchanged since the last time we talked about it. It's Street Racer. I still like it. Yeah, I've played it on the Saturn. It plays bloody great. Yeah, PlayStation was my console of choice for it, and I really, really liked it. I think 78% is incredibly harsh. I'd have given it an 85, maybe even a DeLorean. Yeah, I'd have gone that sort of direction as well. And to wrap up the reviews, Dominic plugs the Games Master page, including Luke. There's going to be some Quake patches you can download. Oh, that is tasty. That's a reason to go there. Okay, we're going to go to a commercial break now. Coming up in part two, Paul Lation, top... Hollyoaks Heartthrobber will be on the show doing a challenge, but more importantly, I'm going to try and find out just how much money the cheeky little monkey earns. My greatest pleasure? Fishing. Yes, fishing. That walk through the early morning mist, the smell of wildflowers, the sound of water tumbling over pebbles. And finally, that moment when you feel the line tighten against your fingers. Who knows? One day I may even catch a fish. Courvoisier, a pleasure in every sense. With Orange, everyone receives 12 months free insurance with free 24-hour replacement service and a free three-year warranty. The future's bright. The future's orange. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If we can get a little closer. The nocturnal activities of this species are fascinating. Some nipple delicious wafer-thin after eights. Here we see a challenge to the dominant male, who's clearly marked his territory. 
With awesome eyesight, this creature spots one lone after eight and devours mercilessly. What? And here... Blasted film crew got in here again. Oh dear, looks as though we've been spotted. <laughs> the call is crucial, the question is urgent, but the person with the answers is out. How do you handle it? It's Brian Taylor here. Of, yes, of RZH. Uh-huh. I'm afraid Bruce is out of the office at the minute, but uh, let me look into it for you. I've got your required delivery for the 30th. Take a week out of that. Let me just look at the stock position. Well, it's tight, but we could do it. Bruce has obviously got you well briefed. Oh, we're a close team here. Well, we're all a team now. Well. That's fantastic news, Mr. Taylor. Callscape displays your customer details the instant the phone rings. For a free demonstration disc, call BT Business Connections on free phone 0800 800 800. Master in the commercial bit that you've seen a lot of adverts. What you don't know is one of them was a total lie. We come out of the ad break and as Dominic Diamond reveals that one of those adverts was a total lie. Let's get into our celebrity challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? I've never been to New York City myself, but with all that crime and depravity, it certainly sounds like a wonderful spot for a holiday. My next contestant will be paying it a visit in the form of the PlayStation's Die Hard trilogy. Positioned behind the wheel of one of the city's infamous checkered cabs, the player must race around, attempting to defuse four bombs before they explode. Time is of the essence, so I would advise my contestant to avoid wasting valuable seconds in the needless slaughter of pedestrians. I think Games Master is thinking of the pre-Giuliani <laughs> New York City, because here we are, 95, 96, going on 1997. The, the place is being cleaned up quite a bit. Ironic, given the future of that individual. There was a once upon a time when New York was a seething pit of crime, villainy, and the seedy dregs of the human race. Yeah, it, it was Moss Eisley. It was. It was Moss Eisley, particularly around 42nd Street. I, but actually, I think it's a very good punchline uh, that we get here from Games Master, which you know, we haven't had much of from... We don't see Games Master a lot in the later series of the show because he just introduced the challenges. Like, particularly, you know, last week, he got to introduce one challenge. We saw him once in the whole show. Usually, we see him twice. So we don't often get the chances for him to do jokes like we had, you know, back in Series 2 or whatever. So I like the line of just being like, I've never been to New York, but I hear it's a place of crime and depravity. It sounds like a great place to go on holiday. That's a good punchline to that setup. And I, I really like that we got to see that out of Games Master for this episode. But also, it's Die Hard Trilogy, man. I've got a lot of nostalgic love for Die Hard Trilogy, but I think for the most part, it's quite bollocks. I love Die Hard 2, Die Hard of a Die Hard Trilogy because it was the best Virtua Cop we never got on the PlayStation. Yeah. I loved die hard with a vengeance because it was a bit proto gta it was a lot of fun tearing around new york city trying to ram into bombs because apparently that's how you defuse bombs now it's quicker than doing the thing with the jugs that would have been great if every time you got to the bomb you had to get out and use the analog sticks to balance water jugs but for me i played die hard with a vengeance i completed that i played die hard 2 i completed that I never gave the first Die Hard the time of day. That just felt like such a weird... It was a top-down shooter. It didn't work. It felt like the one which the least 
effort had been put into. Which is weird because it also feels like it's the one that feels like a complete game. You know, you are a character going into a place where, you know, the second one's a shooter, the third one's a driving game, but it's also the one that plays the worst. Never touch the first game. Like we play, you know, me and my mate would play it once, don't really like it. We spent a lot of time on Die Hard 2 and then occasionally dive into Die Hard 3. But yeah, Die Hard 2 is where we spent most of our time with the trilogy. It's weird you say that. It feels like the most fully-fledged game because it was one of the segments developed later. Die Hard Trilogy started out as Die Hard with a Vengeance. And that was the one that Probe Entertainment were developing. That was their kind of meat and vegetables of the game. And Fox were like, yeah, but could we kind of link it to the other films? And so they developed the other two segments. They were also working on Alien Trilogy at the time because it was the big acclaim probe fox kind of smorgasbord kind of thing going on die hard with a vengeance was where they started and i guess they worked their way back so maybe they started with die hard with a vengeance then did die hard 2 and then by the time they got to die hard they were like well tick tock yeah we've got two weeks left on this and i've got plenty of lunch breaks to take i suppose what else could they have done with it because the driving element for die hard with a vengeance it makes sense if you look at the tropes of the film The open areas and higher body count of Die Hard 2, a scrolling light gun game, makes perfect sense. What could you do with the first Die Hard? It doesn't lend itself to being accurately portrayed in a video game. So I guess the top-down shooter is is where it's at. Actually, no, a stealth game. I I guess there's, you know, you go back to Die Hard on the NES. I think that's, I I think it's a bit of a bum rap diet on the NES. Because it's you know, it's very movie accurate and it's got some really interesting ideas in there. Like, you know, you walk on broken glass and you lose health and this, that and the other. And it's it's only got the same amounts of baddies that are in the movie. But it's it also it's it's not very that good, really. But I think what they did with Die Hard 1 within Die Hard Trilogy is almost trying to do a 3D version of that. But it just it doesn't quite come together as a full thing. No, I, I get that. I mean, the, the development team were a very junior development team. And they they openly admitted they were struggling. But the focus of today's challenge is Die Hard with a Vengeance. We are driving a taxi around like a mad bastard. And man, we 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 probably gonna have some super big celebrity to play this. Like maybe maybe Bruce Willis has come over. Maybe Samuel L. Motherfucker no. Jackson. Maybe Rickman. We've already talked about him once today. Maybe Alan Rickman is gonna come over and play Die Hard with a Vengeance. Okay, so in a fine piece of televisual symbiosis, our special guest tonight is the bloke you can see straight after us on Channel 4. No, it's not the guy who says, next time you're a roof leaks, don't say I didn't warn you. It is Paul Lation from Hollyoaks. Good show, Paul. I'm sure it's an honour uh, for you to meet me. It is, it's an honour to be here. Okay, Paul, uh, you're on two nights a week now. Yeah. Hollyoaks, so presumably you get, are you getting twice as much money now? <laughs> um, yeah, I suppose we are getting twice as much money, yeah. How much, uh, I mean, you know, putting humour aside for, for one second oh, on the show, obviously. how much exactly do you earn? How much do I earn? Yeah. You just asking me how much I earn? Uh, I think so, unless I've gone mad. Um, about six to nine grand a week. Six to nine grand a week, so yeah. it's considerably less than I get. Oh, just in Hollyoaks sure. though, just right. in Hollyoaks. Okay. Oh, because I've got my sideline jobs. Yeah, you do DJing, don't you? I do, yeah. Have you got a special DJ name? <laughs> uh, DJ Success. DJ Success. <laughs> Was that, the, was that your first kind of attempt at a name, or did you come up with a, you know... Uh, I was DJ Puffin. Was Puff- that the best one? I was DJ Puffin. DJ um, Puffin? Yeah. Yeah, I like that one. Uh, <laughs> DJ Goose. Um, but no. There's an animal theme running through. <laughs> there was an animal theme. And then yeah. you came with success. <laughs> yeah. Which isn't technically an animal. Well, no, 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 but successful success. Uh-huh.
Now, they couldn't even get Tony from Hollyoaks. So instead, we've got Paul Lation here. Clearly, he knows what this show is because he's excited to get the joystick at the end, but yet is puzzled by Dominic's line of questioning. I can't work out if he was acting or genuinely Dom had blindsided him because it's not even a case of, art oh, you earn a lot of money? Dom is really going for the fine detail and actually seems a little bit surprised when Paul does give up a bit about what he's bringing home a week, which is seven to nine thousand pounds a week. But that's not just from Hollyoaks. That's also including his side hustle as a DJ, <laughs> which we'll get to in a moment, because the most amazing thing about Paul Lation is how much we couldn't find about him. Yeah. He played Ollie in Hollyoaks from the show's first episode until the character died in October 1997. So he's got a year and then he better get back to that DJ hustle. He also appeared in some other things, including something called Cave Girl, You Get Me, Muddle Earth and Flugels. The last couple were kids animated shows, I think, and he was just doing voice acting. There is someone else out there with the same name as him acting as a director slash producer, but we don't think it's the same person. And about the only other thing I could find, other than appearances on various entertainment shows of the time, including the Saturday morning kind of run of things, he was on a children's BBC show called Hangar 17 for a while, which was kind of like a variety, games, guests, music, competitions, that kind of thing, done in the afternoon on children's BBC. So kind of like a heavily condensed Saturday morning show format. And he was one of the kids that were appearing on there. That's pretty much it his his tv credits on the imdb dry up towards the end of the 2000s yeah like the the wikipedia page for the character is it, it kind of tells you the story it's but it's only in like four paragraphs or whatever it is like the ollie benson character page has got like four paragraphs of information it's across two years worth of being on the show so clearly was not a integral part he was not a tony who funny enough was already featured on games master previously back in series two He's not a classic Hollyoaks character. He was before my Hollyoaks time as well, so I've got zero memory of him whatsoever. He's just like, I mean, he's on Games Master here because Hollyoaks is on directly after Games Master. As Dominic says, like, this is TV symbiosis. It's why he is here. But I don't, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of uh, your lass from Don't Forget Your Toothbrush, where it's like, yeah, there's not a whole lot to say about this person other than, she did this for that one time, and that is pretty much about it. He doesn't have a Wikipedia page. He doesn't even have a red link. He has, a, he has no link on Wikipedia. We are probably closer to having a Wikipedia page than this guy. <laughs> <laughs> There's part of me that thinks he is slightly blindsided by Dom's line of questioning. Because Dom literally says to him, he's like, no, no, you know, how much do you earn? And he sort of looks off to the side to like look at the directive and like, are you, are you really just asking me how much I earn? I was like... Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what I just asked, unless I'm going mad. And he, like, to his credit, he goes, yeah, it's seven to nine grand a week. And he just openly says it. it's great. But it also includes his side hustles as a DJ. Luke, what's his DJ name? It's DJ Success. But that's not his first DJ name, is it? What was his first DJ name, Luke? The infinitely better DJ Puffin. Followed by... DJ Goose. DJ Goose is not as good as DJ Puffin. Oh, no, I like DJ Goose because you got the Top Gun kind of tie in there. Which is why I think DJ Puffin is better. It's like it's original there. So he started with an animal theme, or more accurately, a bird theme. And then DJ Success. His reasoning is, well, I'm successful now. Fair enough, mate. Well, we'll see where that is in a couple of years' time. It always genuinely worries me when we have someone on the show that is there as a celebrity and we can't find anything on them. Because unless they are a complete tool, 
and this guy isn't. I want them to be well and hopefully healthy. So if anyone out there knows of this dude and knows where he is now, maybe he is that film director we found with the same name, maybe he isn't. I hope the dude is doing okay in life. That's it, really. When he sits down at the set, I thought that they changed the layout of this ever so slightly since the the Danny John Jules episode. Because you know Danny John Jules was talking about like the lights and this, that, and the other. And then like the week after that, Athlete Kings, they were talking about how uncomfortable it was to sit on the 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 barrels. He sat down here and I was like, this looks like they've actually altered the set somewhat. And I've gone back and I've double checked and I've got literally a, a frame by frame example of the same shot used for when Danny was on the set and when Paul's on the set. And it is the exact same setup, but I think they've replaced the TV with a bigger TV. It was quite a small TV. Yeah. That would make sense. This one's probably got a nicer set of scart sockets, so maybe they can have multiple consoles plugged in at once. And sitting next to me in my own personal commentary cab is Rick Henderson. Rick, cab drivers are good or a bad thing? Well, my uncle's a cab driver, so they're definitely a bad thing. Uh-huh. He's, a, he's a complete lunatic, and uh-huh. he's crashed into about 500 cars. 500? Yeah, 500 cars. Exactly. Some cars. Okay. <laughs> right, Rick, have you got any tips for Paul on this? Yep, certainly. Well, he's in a yellow taxi, so it's crashing to everything time. I like your uncle. With the, <laughs> with the three yeah. bombs. Listen to us. There is a red arrow up in the top corner, which will show him where the next bomb will be. So he's got to listen to us and take the right corners at the right times. Rick Henderson is in the booth, whose uncle is a cab driver and apparently has crashed 500 cars exactly. And goes very Vic and Bob in this. He's like, 500 cars. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, he's got very simple advice. Follow the red arrow. And listen to Dom and Rick shouting. They will guide him. I, to be honest, for the most part, he doesn't need that. It's quite a straightforward game to play. He knows roughly what he's doing. I was going to say, Paul in the green room has played through this challenge a couple of times because he knows this route. As soon as he gets that first one, he's like, whoop, turn around, go get the next one. Like he already knows where it's going to be. And although he comes very close to failing this on a handful of occasions because cars get in his way or he smacks into a building and then can't quite reverse out of the error that he's made. Or occasionally accidentally glitches into the park. The game almost breaks. The game just just goes, ah, 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 okay, now you're back on the road. Yeah, the game pushes him out of the park for him. He, he knows exactly where he's going on this. And yeah, it comes close to a couple of times to him failing, but he does do this with some relative ease first bomb he diffuses no problem you say he diffuses ash but the bomb still explodes it just it's it's a t- it's a controlled explosion that's what they call it normally it involves a robot and being covered in an oven mitt but this time you just ram it with a yellow taxi cab they're made out of the same material as black boxes so they pretty much survive everything but he gets the first one controlled explosion he gets the second one controlled explosion not too bad But the third bomb is the closest he gets to completely bollocksing this up because the clock, as the time ticks down, your timer to reach each bomb, it fills the screen and it has done that. He's in like the last maybe five seconds when he control explodes that particular bomb. And he comes around for that fourth one. And again, it's pretty close, but it's not as close as that third. And he gets it and he is very pleased with himself that he's completed this challenge. We've had some pretty good celebrities thus far. They seem to know what they're doing. I mean, even Danny, who didn't win, he was still good at the game. He was awesome. That's how little there is to say about this poor bugger. We're talking about Danny again. Congratulations, Paul. Thank you very much. It wasn't easy. Well, um, no, the last two bombs especially were uh, very, very close to exploding now. 
yeah, I mean, I had to negotiate those corners and it was just like very, very difficult at the last two. Was there any similarities you saw between that game and Hollyoaks? Kurt does drive a fast car away from policemen, so uh, uh -huh. I, yeah, I could see him running over a few people and <laughs> smashing up a few cars. And in a lot of ways, Paul, life is just like looking for that next unexploded bomb. It's also like a bowl of cherries, Dominic. Is it? Yeah. But where's your stock? <laughs> where's uh, my joystick? Right, yeah. well. Yeah, I like that, uh, you know, Dom is there trying to tie it back into Hollyoaks because it is the show that's on after Games Master. So yeah, like, I think that's nice to kind of give me some comparisons to what Hollyoaks is. I get, I get the feeling that Dom is not a fan of Hollyoaks. I don't, I don't imagine he's a fan of many soaps, but I don't think he's a fan of Hollyoaks at all. No, I, I do think he kind of likes Paul, though, or at least he has a bit of a spark with him. Because Dom does go on to say that life is a lot like this game, always looking for the next unexploded bomb, and Paul's like, well, it's also a lot like a bowl of cherries, to which Dom immediately quips, but where's your stalk? And which Paul immediately replies with, where's my joystick? Good question, back on track, but still a hint of dick joke. Contractually, though, they do have to give him the golden joystick, the mermaids appear, as does Paul's joystick, and his trophy. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah, I, th I thought it was a perfectly fine challenge. He was a perfectly fine celeb. Like, it was a decent little thing. It was. It was fun, and it was great seeing the Die Hard trilogy as a challenge. Yeah. Being the undisputed heavyweight king of video games, I've come up with a few ideas of my own over the years, but I can't program. This is why I've mountain biked over to Tokyo to a special school that will teach me how to turn what's in there into buck-munching money spinners. In the West, game programming seems to be something you just fall into, but in Japan, they take it a lot more seriously. The human school is just one of a number of establishments designed to turn ordinary Japanese civilians into video game giants. Dominic Diamond. Hi. My Japanese is a bit rusty, so I chummed up with a bloke called Kurihari-kun, following a principle that stood me in good stead throughout my life. Of course, the best way to get ahead of school is crib off someone else. Uh, Kurihari-kun, what are you doing just now, mate? So he's basically looking at a pair of ladies' legs. However, we've got a feature to end off the show here as Dom has got more of his stuff that he filmed while he was out in Japan. We get a couple of these. We get one in the Christmas episode uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, and here he is at Human Entertainment. And basically, it's a school where you learn to make video games. And it's a pretty cool thing because I think, you know, when this show was on and the age that I was at, this is the sort of thing that I would have seen and be like, that looks like the coolest thing you could do. You know, I don't, you know, when you're like 11, 12 years old, wherever it is, you don't think about how difficult it is to make a game. I still don't really think about that much these days. But the idea of just like going to a school and being taught how to make video games seems like a dream come true. And like, oh, only in the far flung regions of Japan would this ever be a thing. And I think, you know, part of that sort of mindset is informed by features like this on Games Master. This is believed to be the world's first school dedicated to game creation, the Human Creative School. It was part of the same headquarters as the main company. It was in a western part of Tokyo. And as kind of part of their development and tuition, the company assigned its students to make some games. And some of these contributions became part of like immensely successful games. Uh, Dragon Eyes which was a sim for the Super Famicom, Egypt, which was a puzzle game for the Famicom slash NES, and 
most notably, and one that's featured in this feature, The Fireman, which we've discussed before. And I don't know that it did sell more copies than Super Mario World, but it was a big seller and is still very widely regarded today. It is genuinely fascinating to me to see this school, to see that there is kind of this syllabus. It's not just being done as kind of a Ponzi scheme or kind of a weird vocational course. There are entire subsections. There are people learning about 3D rendering. There are people learning about music and sound in video games. It's a proper syllabus. And it gets even better because in 1999, they actually expanded. They created a correspondence school so you could learn remotely. And Luke, I suspect you know the truly tragic end to this tale, which is a year later, human went bye-bye. Yeah, literally one year after they launched this new initiative, declared bankruptcy. And it's, it's a shame because you're right, like, you know, it's it's not just the fireman. The fireman, by the way, is part of this feature that really piqued my interest because I love the fireman. I think it's a fabulous little game. Comes right at the end of the SNES life cycle, so it's expensive as bollocks to pick up a, a, a copy of. But it's also, you know, these are the people that made the Fire Pro games. Like, it's it's some really, like, interesting stuff here. But yeah, one year later, dumb. This company is absolutely done so. So it's a very cool snapshot of 90s Japan. And the other thing that I really caught my eye in this feature is the moment where Dom is going around looking at all the job applications. 80% of people who are at the school will go straight into jobs as programmers. Very good percentage of that. All the big video games companies advertise here. We've got uh, uh, Konami up here, Nintendo, and uh, Capcom over here. And uh, this is a good one here. Uh, Scotsman needed, must be bald, yet strangely attractive and very amusing to do no work for Macho Yeno. So I'm sorted for a job as well. Because he's talking about, you know, like 80% of the kids that go here go on to work in the video game field. He's like, look at all these job applications on the wall. That's Konami, that's Nintendo. This is Capcom. And sure, yeah, like he makes a joke about like, you know, they're looking for a Scotsman and stuff. But this is like legit companies looking to hire people. And I think that's a really cool thing. Yeah, even Scottish people, Luke. And I I think as a feature, it's it's not great because it's it's Dom doing a lot of Dom jokes, you know, like the, the, the Scotsman one that you just mentioned there, or, you know, like the Danishes weren't very nice. Or I'm just cribbing off of someone else's homework. I'm making noughts and crosses. Like, I don't think a lot of the humor of it lands. Actually, I don't think any of the humor of it lands, really. But I think the actual, like, concept of the feature is pretty cool. It's very cool because it's a first. And really, it didn't close because it failed. It closed because the parent company cocked up. There was meant to be this big restructuring deal where the uh, the game creation school would be spun off as its own little subsidiary, be transferred out. And, you know, rights to the various game franchises went off mainly to Spike, including Fire Pro Wrestling, Twilight Syndrome, so on and so forth. But January 2000, they were just declared bankrupt because they failed to negotiate that restructuring deal. And whilst that is the end for human, it's not the end for many of its talent. In addition to the wonderfully named Nude Maker development studio, you also have Sandlot and Spike and Gochi Suda's development company, Grasshopper Manufacturer. And Suda is a name that becomes very important as we go into the 2000s. I would love to find a list of human school alumni. Dom says in his feature, a lot of them go straight into industry, but did any of them become the people that are making the games that we're playing today, that are in charge of studios today? How many 
of those people that graduated became industry leaders in Japan? I would love to know. If anyone out there knows of an article or similar with that detail in, please send it over because I would be fascinated. Dom covers it in this feature. As a nation, particularly at this time, we were a nation of bedroom programmers. If you look at how the 8-bit revolution began, if you look at the Spectrum, the Commodore 64, if you look at Jeff Minter, if you look at the Oliver Twins, if you look at Codemasters, if you look at all those games, they started in someone's bedroom. There wasn't a school. There was things in the back of magazines. There was books. There was kind of poking and cheating your way through games. And yet there in Japan, they are a decade ahead. It wouldn't be until the mid to late 2000s that this would become something that you could actually go and do courses in. It's amazing to see in context. You're right, the jokes fall flat on their ass. But the actual content and seeing what these people are doing and the fact that they're not even just learning how sprites work, we're watching them working with 3D models, trying to make realistic 3D models in a computer. It's probably not the most entertaining feature we've had in Series 6, but I would wager the most informative. To your point, when I went to university in 2004, we wouldn't have had anything like this. Within an arse's roar, like when I went there and I did my entertainment technology, which was a proper little Mickey Mouse degree, we were still looking at flash animation. And flash animation at that point was borderline dead. We were making like really like CD-ROM type stuff, which was already sort of like starting to fall by the wayside. But Japan, as often as they are, were just way ahead of the curve. Like the sort of things that they're doing here in 1996, and bearing in mind this this is a company that's existed since 1983, and they've probably been doing the school for a number of years prior to 1996 and Dominic Diamond going over there's film. We wouldn't be getting until I would say late 2000s. We would have actually started to see this become more of a thing in the UK, and, and it which is stupid to see because it's one of the you know it's like every documentary that gets made about video game movies like did you know that video games is a billion dollar industry it's like yeah of course it is but it's just it's so weird that it's still not seen as that by the the, the mainstream public that's it for today on next week's show we have that great bender of the mind yuri geller and i leave you with this question if chris evans fell over when there was no one around to hear him cry would he make a sound Good night. But that's going to do it for this week because next week we've got that great bender of the mind, Yuri Geller. Now I left a pause there, not because I'm childish, because Dominic Diamond nearly giggles at saying that line because he is childish. Because he got to say the word bender on television and it was legitimate. Uh, and our question is, if Chris Evans falls over and no one's around to hear him, will he make a sound? I have no idea. I don't think Dom liked Chris Evans. No, I don't think either. And it's funny as well, because like, yeah, Yuri Geller is our celebrity on next week's one, doing the like the mind drive thing, which we saw back in series five, by the way. But that is not what next week's episode is most remembered for. No, it's a third time round, second time round with a franchise for one Martin Mathers, who's going two cop, two furious. Two copies of Virtua Cop, two hands, two guns. He is, yeah. He's back again with a Renegade Master. And it's a an interesting little challenge, which we'll get to in next week's episode. But that's going to do it for episode four of Series 6. Ash, we've had some belters with Series 6 so far. Episode one, great. Episode two was better. Episode three, one of the best episodes I think we've had on this show. What did you make of episode four? It's complicated because if this episode had fallen last season or even in season four, I'd be saying this is a 92 to 93% situation, maybe even a 94 because the games were great. The challenges were great. But 
after the spectacle of the past couple of episodes, it feels a little bit dry. And I feel bad for feeling that because it is really good. The Quake Challenge is unlike anything we've had before. It is almost like a dungeon master versus a player in a tabletop RPG situation. Michael had built the world. Maka was trying to survive in it. Excellent stuff. Poor chap from Hollyoaks was decent at the game. He knew what he was doing. He deserved to win the joystick. It wasn't that easy a challenge. The reviews were fine. The news was fine. We got to chat about T2. The feature, whilst dry with some humour that didn't necessarily land, was a great feature. I want to give this over 90%, but I don't think I can. Normally, my default would be to go DeLorean, but I think I'm going to go to 89. I just think this is on the cusp of greatness. And it's only pushed down by how good the other episodes have been. Yeah, I think this is an episode that I may be looking upon slightly too harshly because the last few episodes we've had have been so good. Because, like, you know, like the list of games in this is Tomb Raider, it's Sonic Fighters, it's Terminator 3D it's die hard uh it, it's quake it's like a really it's it's a good litany of titles that i love and have, and very much enjoy talking about but when the episode finished i was like i haven't got the same like i can't wait to watch another episode that i had with one to three so i'm also not in the 90s but i'm also not as high as 89 i'm also not as high as a delorean either Wow. I feel like I'm mid-80s, but I'm actually going to go slightly higher than that. I'm going to go... Do you know what? I'm actually going to go... You went one higher? I'm going to go one less than the DeLorean. I'm going to say 87 for this one. If you went 87, I go 89. It means the median. It's a DeLorean! (laughs) But that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. You all rule, and you can find us on social media, on Twitter at underconsolepod, on Instagram at under.console, and you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com. And if you want to interact with us in real time, if you want to interact with other listeners, other people that enjoy retro gaming, retro pop culture, all that good stuff, you can do so over on our Discord, where there's a lovely group of people and Don't forget to come on down Wednesday nights for our mod Matty Boo's regular watch-along parties. You're getting episodes of Games Master, commercials, music videos, maybe even the occasional sneaky, pop-culturally appropriate feature film thrown in for good measure. It's a good old time. And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash under console pod, where you'll get access to UCP Extra, which is this show format, but about other shows from the 80s and 90s, and our monthly community podcast, under console nation at the five pound level you'll get next week's episode one week early and ad free but at the 10 pound level you get something a little bit extra what do they get oh they get our patreon backer pack which contains a glittery golden under consultation joystick waggler mug stuffed with lots of goodies including badges stickers retro sweeties retro trading cards all of which wing their way directly to your door and a shout out to those £10 backers, Xanderthal, William, Tom, The Amazing Cliff, Simon, Sean, Sarah, aka Pink Lithium, Richard, Reese, Nick, Misha, Matty, Boo, Mark, Link, Kevin, Jamie, Ian, Harriet, Manga Girl, Gordon Dempster, Gordon Brands, David Palmer, David Fisher, Darkside73, Chrissy Two Sticks, Arcadia, Wild Bill, Andy, Andrew, and Adam. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you in seven days' time. Take care, everyone. Good night.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.